0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And first, I must begin with an apology. It hasn't been weekly for the last few weeks and I've broken a pledge. The last time I broadcast this uh, podcast, I said... uh, definitively at the end that i was about to go up to the edinburgh festival and i would record the weekly podcast live from edinburgh well not live it would be recorded but i didn't i broke the pledge it's an interesting insight to uh, a politician's dilemma sometimes they make pledges believing it when they make them and then find that to quote the euphemism circumstances Change Well, it's not always a euphemism. Sometimes it can be true. Edinburgh, as ever, was brilliant and exciting and tiring and actually no space at all to record the podcast. So the circumstances changed in ways I didn't envisage when I made the pledge. Uh, I feel like uh, Nick Clegg and a thousand others who've been in that situation. My apologies uh, for not keeping... To the pledge and i return from edinburgh now to find that uh, politics wholly predictably is in the same place as it was when the summer recess began uh, this is always the case in politics at the end of july some commentators write and some leaders hope that somehow as if by magic a few weeks away on the beach or up mountains or on walking holidays will bring about a change in the political mood when everybody gets back it never happens and indeed in some cases when there is a sense of political crisis in the air that crisis deepens as if by magic during the august holiday people return erupting with more energy and anger or hope or desire to make waves after a period away from the political stage and there is a greater sense of shapeless intensity and that is i think uh, where we are at the moment with those familiar themes of brexit the crazy Jeremy Corbyn, anti-Semitism, Furore, and so on. Just briefly on those two because they are unchanged. The most interesting but wholly predictable dimension of Brexit is the um, clear signs now that the rebellion against Theresa May's checkers, proposals doom them already at Westminster whatever happens in her negotiation with the European Union. David Davis has said uh, he's going to vote against the Chequers uh, proposals if they come back in anything like this form and of course he said wholly logically that he resigned over them as a cabinet minister so he could hardly vote for them. That must be the same position with uh, Boris Johnson and at Edinburgh, one of the people we sort of try to get into the mind of was Jacob Rees-Mogg, and the audiences agreed when we delve deeply into his mind that such is his definition as a politician of purity when it comes to Brexit and unswerving opposition to checkers, He too will have to vote against it. Now they, these three individuals, carry others with them. It's not clear how many But it seems to me that the Chequers proposal will not secure a majority in the House of Commons, nor will no deal, which is why those of us who are suggesting a second referendum is a way through this, or what the organisers insist on calling the people's vote, is, is I think still a feasible option. I loathe referendums they are a wholly unsatisfactory way of deciding a contentious complex issue in the short term and never resolve anything in the long term, as evidenced by the fact that we've already had two of these referendums on Europe and they just generate more and more division. The one in 1975 did, led partly to the... uh, intensification of the debate within the Labour Party by 1983 Labour were pledged to leave the European Union and the SDP was set up partly in reaction against that and uh, of course this um, silly referendum that David Cameron held in binary vote on issues of multi-layered complexity has just reignited a whole range of thorny debates without resolution. The reason I think it might be feasible is to have another of these silly referendums and desirable is the parliamentary paralysis this autumn must be resolved one way or another. They could ask for an extension to Article 50 but that merely kicks all these thorny issues into the long grass and at some point there has to be a kind of legitimising of whatever... Messy outcome looks as if it's going to take shape, and a referendum might just do that. And it is interesting that many prime ministers begin their leadership wholly opposed to referendums as a matter of principle. I remember when Tony Benn first came up with the idea in the early 1970s, well, I don't remember directly but I've read his diaries and others when he first raised this issue Labour were in opposition and Ted Heath was moving towards uh, signing up to joining the then common market not with a referendum but with a vote in Parliament Tony Benn said in his diary I raised the possibility of a referendum to Harold, Harold Wilson was then leader Harold was utterly dismissive saying we're parliamentary sovereignty and we mustn't uh, bypass the sovereignty of parliament with a vote, referendum, etc., etc. All the theoretical, wholly weighty arguments against a referendum is the leader's first instinct until he realises, or she realises, it's the only way through. And Wilson woke up one day and recognised that the only way to keep his party together was to offer a referendum on Britain's continued membership of the then Common Market. Uh, Wilson skillfully won that referendum in 1975. David Cameron was against referendums in theory when he was first asked about them. He was forced to hold several of them. And, of course, the one on Brexit was one of them. Now Theresa May is going around saying she's against a referendum but it could be that one day she wakes up and realises she is wholly trapped with Parliament rejecting her deal and no deal and the only way through for her might be to turn to the electorate rather than to continue to navigate within her party, a navigation uh, which she is ill-suited Uh, to conduct she's not a figure of guile or mesmerizing oratory that can bind conflicting wings together with the magic of words and performance she's got other skills but not those she's wholly unsuited to this task so she might discover that the referendum is the way through and the Labour leadership wisely say they are keeping the door open. I don't think they can go any further than that at the moment because they don't know what the deal is that May will bring back this autumn if she manages to do uh, so at all. So that is why it is still feasible to contemplate that possibility and indeed desirable to do so. Other than that no one knows what's going to happen this autumn it's going to be a period of seismic politics and one of the great pleasures of doing the Edinburgh show was each day I began by saying look this august historians and novelists will be writing about it because we're on the edge of history this point where no one knows what will happen next from us lot in a room in Edinburgh to Theresa May to Barnier to Merkel to Boris Johnson who appears self-confidently assertive but has no detailed proposition for a workable deliverable Brexit and so on and um, the the weeks ahead are going to be exciting and significant historically significant I'm not going to spend much time on the Labour anti-Semitism furore. The NEC has now adopted that full definition of anti-Semitism. I can fully understand why Corbyn and others wanted some qualifications to it. Very senior Jewish lawyers have expressed concerns about it. But this whole furore has been, in my view, something of a red Herring, and i've talked about this in previous podcasts it is an imprecise scandal the fact that senior jewish figures and jewish mps sincerely regard corbyn as anti-semitic is not proof in itself that he is the fact that he has spoken dismissively of some zionists does not automatically mean he was referring to all jews and I suspect would be out of character for Corbyn to be so sweepingly dismissive in those terms. We know what he was like as a backbench MP with no expectation, desire or hope of ever being a minister, let alone a leader. He was a campaigning left-winger and one of his causes was that of the uh, Palestinians who he met, some of whom were clearly associated with or were part of terrorist groups that I do not think meant that Corbyn endorses terrorism and indeed one of the many accusations made against him is that Corbyn is a pacifist and that's probably closer to where he stands and you can get him for naivety and all the rest of it but it's quite hard then to argue that oh here he is celebrating terrorists who are blowing people up but uh, that period was one in which he never contemplated for a moment that he would be leader of a national party and alternative prime minister many people who have that ambition calculate their every move accordingly He now is plucked out of context and treated as a future leader of the opposition as he went about his fairly peripheral marginal crusades as a radical left-wing MP. I think those internal dissenters who have seized on this issue as I say, partly out of a sincerity, I've got absolutely no doubt about that, but also as a means of undermining him, have chosen again the wrong issue. They misjudged that leadership challenge when he won a second landslide, and I think in using this issue, they have chosen the wrong one. There are arguments you can frame powerfully and effectively against the Corbyn leadership they've chosen in anti-Semitism, the wrong one and uh, it's quite interesting that these Edinburgh shows and the people coming to them were not on the whole Corbynistas few raised it as an issue they they raised other things and indeed some showed an interest in another political party and all the rest of it this just did not come up Anyway, it will no doubt rumble on because now they've uh, accepted the uh, full definition of anti-Semitism. Newspaper editors will ask people to trawl back to show what Corbyn said in 1982, conflicts with it and all the rest of it. So on it will run. But it is, in my view, a sideshow, while I accept fully, that some feel sincerely that he is anti-Semitic and is leading a party where anti-Semitism is a distinct problem. By the way, there are some who are in there tweeting outrageously and, and perhaps on the edge of criminality. It is partly to do with being a mass membership party where you can't control all these members. It's partly to do with social media and it's partly to do with a much wider issue of anti-Semitism and other forms of racism that are around at the moment well beyond, I suspect, the Labour membership. But it's been everything conflated, as all political scandals tend to do. There is a sort of allegation, and an allegation is made on the allegation. That becomes a crisis, and all the kind of different things become conflated. Anyway, in some respects... The great hidden divide, I suspect, in British politics is a different one. Many people say, as if they've hit upon a great revelation, that the new divide in British politics is not right versus left, but open versus closed. Now, that is a divide, but it's always been around, and it's been of fundamental historic importance many times. The Tories split over the Corn Laws, and that was an open versus closed divide. Tariff reform has been an open versus closed debate, which has split parties over the centuries. And Brexit is partly, but only partly, an open versus closed divide. So people who have hit upon this and claim that this is a great insight into modern British politics ignore the fact that this has been around for some time. I think a much more significant but hidden divide is in relation to public services in the UK, which are now depressingly poor. And that divide is partly about uh, whether you invest adequately in them versus those who think that, as if by magic, reform, in inverted commas, can improve public services. I'm always intrigued when I read things like editorials in The Times saying, oh, well, there's absolutely no need for increases in public spending, can all be done by reform as if, say, the editor of the Times, when contemplating improving his house, or I assume he's got a second house somewhere, would say, well, if we reform the way we uh, conduct ourselves in this house, that will itself improve the furniture and the quality of the sound of the stereo that I listen to and the television. You know, the investment is fundamental. Um, clearly, we're not investing enough in the National Health Service, as Theresa May has belatedly acknowledged, but not by uh, pledging yet to spend enough. And the same applies to the hopeless state of the uh, railways and others. But there is a reform issue, and that's where I think one of the big divides in British politics is. And that is between those who believe in the fragmentation of public services accompanied by relatively low levels of investment versus those who believe that the investment needs to be much higher and controlled with a precision and firm lines of accountability and this summer again has illustrated the problems in my view of the fragmentation model. I've talked about this when it happened the chaos of introducing the changes to timetables in some parts of the country railway timetables was illustrative of that it wasn't at all clear who was responsible for what amidst the chaos and in those blurred lines of accountability they all stagger on in their chaotic incompetence from the transport secretary to network rail to the rail companies to the endless mediating agencies required to sustain that level of fragmentation. It's the same in the NHS where um, it is quite hard to see who is responsible for what. Someone showed me the uh, lines of responsibility for one region of the English NHS and it was like um, you know the spaghetti junction used to be whirls of lines and overriding lines and so and so there and this institution there the idea that this empowers patients when they have to navigate this crazy lack of accountability and scrutiny that arises from these fragmented services. We've now heard that crossrail is going to be delayed, that the high-speed railway line might be delayed. And again, who is responsible? Apparently not the transport secretary. When that uh, the announcement of the crossrail was delayed, he wasn't even put up to give an interview. And the constant fragmentation of services accompanied by underinvestment is our curse as a country from businesses wanting to move goods around and themselves around to the quality of life of everybody dependent on decent public services and in some cases in order to fulfil their potential. It's a great tragedy to see the open university in crisis, the universities themselves pretending that they're in markets that they aren't really in and therefore vice chancellors with their soaring salaries. Now some in politics support the fragmentation of services and claim that it creates a sense of competition and empowerment and there is an argument that you can frame along those lines Uh, and I can see how you do it I completely disagree and I'm on the other side of this hidden divide that doesn't mean a return to the 1970s as some people portray it it means very clear lines of responsibility in the delivery of public services and applies to bodies like the BBC as well, where no one took responsibility for the grotesque helicopter hiring over Cliff Richard's house, which was found to be completely misjudged. Somebody said from the BBC uh, very characteristically in an interview We all take responsibility as this this was a rather heroic admission. But of course, when people say we're all responsible, that means no one takes responsibility. And it also means at times that trade unions will have to be challenged because new technology will help deliver some of these services more efficiently and that will be fantastic for users. And some trade unions say that will take jobs. Maybe it will and their job will be perhaps to protect those jobs, so governments will have to challenge them. And every penny will be accounted for, and politicians will also have to take responsibility. One model which I think works well for those of us who oppose this uh, chaotic fragmentation and lack of accountability is transport for London and the mayor, to some extent replicated now in other big cities. It seems to me now that the mayor of London cannot flourish as a politician if he or she does not deliver decent transport in the areas where he or she is responsible at relatively affordable prices the fares are still outrageously high but that's because we have a culture where subsidy is seen as a waste but that is quite a good model and it's a modern model it's not a 1970s model and all those banal cliches are they're returning to the 70s and actually if there's a criticism of the Corbyn leadership it is a failure to frame arguments around a delivery of public services that will benefit the and bind the country and actually bring back those who feel left behind and give some degree of control to those who feel they've lost control. Those interesting themes from the Brexit referendum had absolutely nothing to do with the European Union and have, I think, much more to do with these other issues where a huge public spending cuts and chaotic public service reforms have left people feeling powerless and left behind. But it also affects businesses, it affects many others, it would be a great binding theme. Anyway, all that will be lost because it's all going to be about Brexit for the next few months. Brexit will suck up all energy, all resources. It's fascinating hearing Brexiteers happy to blow 40 billion quid to get out of the European Union and yet bulk with horror if, um, I don't know, a transport Specialists suggest we need to spend more on trains or the railways. So, anyway, it's going to suck up all the money and all the energy and all the media attention and all the scrutiny and all these other things of fundamental importance will be brushed aside. It's going to be a crazy time, but I hope you carry on listening because I will now keep to the pledge. It will be every week. Sometimes I will broadcast some of the shows I'm doing and interview people. Sometimes it will just be me talking in a room uh, like this. Anyway, look, thank you very much for coming back and listening after the short break during the Edinburgh Festival. And take a deep breath and get ready for the drama to come.